Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank a couple sponsors that we were able to secure for this season, uh, season five of the Scuttlebutt. It's exciting to be able to get sponsors for this. Uh, we're really thankful for them. Uh, the first one, you might have heard them already, is D&D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. The Scuttlebutt's been pairing with D&D for quite some time. Uh, D&D began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s and has grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. These are state-of-the-art scrapyards with deep roots in the community and a strong commitment to the service of their customers. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, that's D and D, autosalvage.com. Thank you, D&D, for supporting this podcast. Uh, been wonderful collaborating with you, and uh, we're looking forward to, to being with you uh, all through season five here. We'd also like to thank a new sponsor for the Scuttlebutt, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. Tobacco-Free Adagio Health is dedicated to preventing and reducing tobacco use and increasing education about tobacco hazards and secondhand smoke. Of course, the best way to be tobacco-free is to never start. And we'll be sharing more about the many programs offered by Tobacco-Free Adagio Health in the future. You can check out more of their work at tobacco-free.adagiohealth. That's A-D-A-G-I-O health.org. Tobacco-free.adagiohealth.org. Org. Um, really excited to have sponsors on board uh, for the Scuttlebutt, and uh, I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. What we have to remember is that the pedestal story took place when nobody knew what we knew. We know that we won. We know that Hitler lost. In August 1942, a lot of people were not nearly so sure of that. Welcome, everyone, to an interlude episode of The Scuttlebutt. My name is Sean Hall, a director of programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club, whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Uh, we are online with the VBC every week on Zoom, Monday night, 7 p.m. Eastern time, uh, to talk military topics. And this is an interlude of The Scuttlebutt. We decided to take one of our live events that we record on Zoom and chop it up and turn it into one of our podcasts so that our listeners here who may not know much about what the BBC does can hear one of our guests. And this was a pretty big guest, Sir Max Hastings. Uh, he is the author of Operation Pedestal. And I want to read you a bit about what Operation Pedestal was about. It was a World War II operation. And this was a very interesting interview that we did with Sir Max Hastings. We were so happy to have him. And uh, this is a bit about what Operation pedestal is about. Now, uh, Max, sir, I said call him Sir Max, really, uh, he, he recreates one of the most thrilling events of, of World War II in his book, Operation Pedestal, the British action to save its troops from starvation on Malta. Um, now, some history on this. In 1940, Hitler had two choices when it came to the Mediterranean region, stay out or commit sufficient forces to expel the British from the Middle East. Now, against his general's advice, the Fuhrer committed a major strategic blunder. He ordered the Wehrmacht to seize Crete, allowing the longtime British bastion of Malta to remain in allied hands. Over the fall of 41, the Royal Navy and RAF, aided by British intelligence, used the island to launch a punishing campaign against the Germans, sinking more than 75% of the, their supply ships destined for North Africa. But 
by the spring of 42, the British had lost their advantage. In April and May, the Luftwaffe uh, dropped more bombs on Malta than London received in the Blitz. That's a, that's a heck of a lot of bombs. A succession of British attempts to supply and reinforce the island by convoy during the spring and summer of 42 failed. British submarines and surface warships were withdrawn, and the remaining forces were on the brink of starvation. Operation Pedestal chronicles the ensuing British mission to save those troops. Over 12 days in August, German and Italian forces faced off against British air and naval fleets in one of the fiercest battles of the war, which is saying something. Uh, while ships packed with supplies were painstakingly divided and dispersed. In the end, only a handful of the Allied ships made it. Most important among them was the SS Ohio, carrying the much-needed fuel to the men on Malta. Um, this is a really interesting conversation, again, that we had with Sir Max Hastings. Uh, so I hope that you enjoy this scuttlebutt interlude. And we're going to be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming for the scuttlebutt and with an episode that I think that you'll be interested in. We're titling it Veterans Advocacy. Now, with the VBC, we don't talk politics. It's one of our main rules. We don't talk about it uh, because we want to create a welcoming environment for everybody. And we find that it's a much more welcoming environment when we don't talk politics. But with the scuttlebutt, we can handle things a, a, a little bit differently. Um, so we're going to be talking with some people who uh, know a lot about what's going on in the field of veteran advocacy, uh, what's going on in Congress, uh, why us as civilians, um, if, if you're listening in a civilian, why should we should be concerned and what we should know about veteran advocacy. So uh, maybe less political, quote unquote, um, but certainly dealing in the realm of politics and what is being done for, for veterans in that realm. And as always, if you are a first-time listener of The Scuttlebutt, please check out all of our episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube, or send me an email, sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. I'm always interested to hear from you guys about what your thoughts are. We've received some great emails, a uh, part of our season five episodes thus far, uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing more from you guys. Uh, and thank you for listening. Well, I'm Glenn Flickinger uh, for the Veterans Breakfast Club. I'm the host and producer of Greatest Generation Live, where we obviously focus on World War II. And today we're thrilled, in fact, honored to have Sir Max Hastings as our guest. Uh, I'm going to read just a little bit about uh, Max Maxis, and he, he, we sort of cleared that up early on with Max. It's okay to call him Max <laughs> uh, from the American yeah. point of view. <laughs> Let me read just a little bit about uh, Max Hastings. Uh, I, I'm taken from his official biography. Couldn't read it all. Otherwise, I don't think we'd have enough time to uh, interview. So uh, Sir Max Hastings is an author, journalist, broadcaster whose work has appeared in every British national newspaper. He's a columnist now for the Times of London and from Bloomberg. Uh, he has published 29 books the most recent of which uh, are Vietnam and Epic History, The Secret War, Spies, Codes, and, uh, and Guerrillas, uh, Catastrophe about the Great War, 1914, um, uh, Finest Years, Churchill is Warlord, one of my favorites. Um, uh, he was educated at Charterhouse and University College, Oxford. And I have to say, I didn't know this about you, Max, uh, where you dropped out to become a journalist. <laughs> Uh, in 67, 68, he worked in the United States, winning a World Press Institute Fellowship, uh, which expired his first book, America 1968, The Fire This Time. So uh, I'll stop there, because like I said, I think uh, we'd take up the next half hour if I, if I went through all of it. But uh, Max, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. Thank you very much for, yeah. for joining us. 
No, well, thank you for that incredibly generous introduction, Glenn. Uh, the stuff you're reading is just a catalog of my mistakes. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. Um, okay, no, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, cut to the chase. Uh, I know what you want to talk about is Operation Pedestal and the events of the Second World War. Right, right, right. Let me let me just first ask because I'm just I'm just uh, I love to understand how uh, authors like you got started. Okay, um, and and Operation Pedestal is a book I read of yours last summer. And I'm just thrilled that we were able to connect and have this on. But it just hit me, just really floored me that you dropped out to become a journalist. Can you just give us a little background as to what happened to you as a young man? I grew up as maybe you did, and a lot of other people on both sides of the pond. Uh, I grew up in a very um, macho, male-dominated household in which all the men claimed to have enjoyed the Second World War. And uh, uh, my father and my uncles and my cousins, they all banged on about what a fantastic time they'd had. And it took my mother, who was a very smart woman, and also had no patience with my father's uh, uh, storytelling, to say, she said, don't you listen for a minute to all the nonsense your father and Uncle Lewis and so on are talking. The Second World War was hell from beginning to end for everybody, the separations and the darkness and the sacrifices. And I grew up um, as a teenager, uh, very much under the shadow of the war. And in Britain around us, uh, um, an old World War II airfield where actually American troops had been stationed uh, was a couple of miles up the road and, uh, um, there were innumerable beside our house in London. Uh, there was just a huge empty space which had been bombed by the Nazis and so on. And so the shadow of the war was very long. And I had a picture of the war in the immediate uh, as a child, which was rather romantic and glamorous. And I had ideas about what wars are like, that if you like, I've spent the rest of my life um, learning to understand a little bit better. Um, one of the things that to me is most important and is directly relevant to what we're talking about today and the Merchant Marine is that when I started out, I thought wars are about soldiers. I thought they're about heroes and they're about the people who fight enemies on the battlefield. And the longer I've studied wars and the more ones come to understand that soldiers are in some ways the least interesting people who participate in mm. wars because very young men, um, many of them don't find it too difficult to be brave, to be a, a bit brave anyway. Um, that um, they don't think a lot because when you're young, none of us do think a lot. Um, I've learned to think much more about victims, that most of the people who die in all wars are not soldiers. They're not brave young men. They're not Audie Murphy. Um, they're people who, whether they like it or not, have got dragged into this thing, especially women and kids. Um, and especially if you like people in the Merchant Marine, many of them over age, who are civilians, who have the slightest desire to get caught up in a war and suddenly finding themselves doing so. And it's the experiences of those people. My books, as the years have gone by, focus more and more on the victims, on the people who got caught up in this whole thing. Um, there are enough books about the heroes. Um, I've, written, I've written myself about the Audie Murphys and the um, uh, RAF hero Guy Gibson, all the rest of it. So it's not that I'm undervaluing them. Of course, every nation needs these people, but there are millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people who get caught up in this stuff, especially in world wars. 
um, who um, I think the last generation of historians didn't pay enough attention to. And when I wrote my book about the Vietnam War, I spent as much time talking to Vietnamese people about their experiences as I did talking to um, Vietnamese soldiers and American soldiers uh, who fought in Vietnam. So I would say I'm now 76. Um, how old are you? 68. Yeah, well, you're a young thing. Uh, but, <laughs> now you. that, but now that I'm the age I am, I feel I won't say that I've got wise because uh, none of us really get wise or not many of us. But I do think my whole percept perception of wars has changed. And when I think that as a kid, I grew up, I remember saying um, as a kid, I thought my father brought me up to believe I was terribly unlucky to have grown up too young to have participated in the Second World War, to have had all the fun he claimed to have had. And of course, all this is bullshit. We are incredibly, we are incredibly lucky that we haven't had to go through what, as you so rightly say, the greatest generation did. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it's a hundred percent accurate. The, the, those observations, obviously, uh, uh, Max. So, so tell us uh, of all the books you've written. I think this is the first book I can remember of yours that gets involved with the Royal Navy and certainly with the Merchant Marine. Why this book? What attracted you to this topic, and how did you get to this topic? I'm always trying to think before I write any book. What can I tell people that will surprise them that they didn't know already? Where's the gee whiz factor? And this does not mean producing dark secrets, because any new book about World War II, especially that says great revelations. Here is the story that that really defeated Hitler. Here is this is all bullshit. Uh, throw those books straight in the dustbin because I don't believe on our side of the wire anyway, possibly in the Soviet archives. But on Western archives, I don't believe there are any great secrets. But a lot of stuff went on that people um, under-recognized. And I personally, having studied um, both the United States, well, every aspect of World War II for so many years, um, I've come to believe that just as the United States Navy was America's greatest fighting service, uh, so I believe the Royal Navy was Britain's. And the Royal Navy has had rather less attention than it deserves, partly because all our admirals, except um, Lord Mountbatten, who was a terrific show-off and self-publicist, they hated publicity, and they didn't want it to be on the front pages. And the Royal Navy always believed that uh, one should uh, fight one's battles very quietly and just tell everybody afterwards who won. And it was just the same. The last job I did as a journalist, I went as a correspondent to the Falklands in 1982. Little war, but in a sort of microcosm, not totally unlike some of the World War II naval battles. And the Royal Navy did not want to take any correspondence at all to the South Atlantic. It wanted to go down there, fight the Argentines, and then announce afterwards who'd won. Um, and eventually the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, did convince um, the uh, the Navy that whether they liked it or not, they got to take some correspondence. And uh, so I was one of a very small number who went. And of course, it was an extraordinary experience. And in some ways, it was a sort of microcosm of those World War II naval battles, because one saw ships sunk by air attack. Um, one saw ships sinking, which is quite a scary sight. I'd never seen a ship sink before 1982. And um, you saw people um, 
it was it was a, a bit like a sort of bad British 1950s movie, uh, The Falklands. I remember at one point I was standing on the shore at San Carlos in the Falklands beside a Royal Marine as we watched Argentine aircraft attack and sink a British landing ship. And the Royal Marine standing next to me, he said, cool, he said, if it goes on like this, we're going to have to get the Yanks down here to help us. <laughs> and I said, I've got to break it to you. The Yanks aren't coming. We're going to have to do this on our own. And um, But one saw all these scenes and people saying the sort of things they said on the pedestal convoy that um, as uh, radar reported a, an Argentine naval attack coming in, um, that uh, the captain of the frigate with whom I was on that occasion, and he, he said, right, chaps, he said, remember when they come, give them hell. And of course, it's a very boring, cliched thing to say. Um, but of course, he'd been brought up on all these black and white 1950s movies. And so he'd learned his script from, uh, from all this. And another captain during another air attack, um, I remember hearing him say to his bridge, this is a guy called Jeremy Larkin on the captain of the command ship, Fearless. And after it had been near miss, Jeremy turned to the bridge and he said, well, there's only one thing to be said for all this when it's over and they make the movie. There will be no part whatsoever for Robert Redford. <laughs> and um, our Canadian navigating officer put his hand up and said, well, what about me? Um, and all these jokes, all I'm saying in a very small way, you can never compare World War II to anything that happened to the post-war generation. But you did get a flavor of those things. You did... Yeah see stuff happening that happened on an incomparably larger scale right. um, uh, in, in World War II. So it helped a bit. So, so Max, help us understand, uh, uh, you know, not only is the merchant marine underappreciated, <laughs> but for most people, certainly in the States, the uh, Mediterranean theater of war is underappreciated. Most Americans kind of think it was D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, and then we were done. So uh, uh, why was Malta so important that the British Navy, Winston Churchill, et cetera, decided to uh, mount the biggest naval expedition since, I think you said, of Jut since Jutland? It was, well, why it, was Malta so important? Sorry. That, um, the Mediterranean if you look at the grand picture of World War II from where we're standing, it was not very important because the big stuff was happening on the Russian front where the Russians were um, deciding the course of the war by eventually defeating the Wehrmacht after suffering 27 million casualties, 27 million dead. And the Mediterranean at one level was a sideshow, but on the other hand, it was very important in a number of ways. One is, it was in 1941-42, um, the only significant battle the British were fighting. And the, American, the Americans were fighting in the Pacific. Uh, Midway was being fought and so on. But in the Western theater, there was no other game in town. And people have no understanding of the fact that Winston Churchill's personal position was far more vulnerable in 1942 than it was in 1940 that Malta was this little island being bombed relentlessly from Italy and from Sicily and from North Africa, um, and um, 300,000 civilians and a relatively small British garrison. And um, a lot of people back in Britain thought the best thing to do would be to let the Axis take it over. But what's the point hanging on to it? It was being bombed 
up Sicily, the German and um, Italian airfields on Sicily were only about 15 minutes flying time away. They were able to keep hammering and hammering at Malta. And people said back in Britain, admirals and generals, well, why are we going on with this nonsense? Why don't we just admit we can't hold Malta and hand it over? And if the Russians win in the East, if they hold out, which a lot of people thought they wouldn't, then uh, Malta doesn't matter one way or the other. And Churchill alone, and very strongly against the wishes of his admirals, he said, we've got to hold this island. Why? Partly because it wasn't only Stalin and the Russians who were wondering if the British were serious about the war anymore. So was the United States. That, um, it's fascinating to study American opinion polls from 1942. Mm. And about June 42, a, a big opinion poll, a Gallup poll, asked Americans who they thought was trying hardest to win the war. Not surprisingly, about 85% said the United States. Uh, after that, about, um, you know, I'm getting the numbers slightly wrong, but said uh, a lot of people said the Russians. After that, they said the Chinese <laughs> and the British. Only 6% of Americans responding to that opinion poll thought the British were trying hardest to win the war. They thought they'd seen the British lose Malaya, lose Singapore, lose right. these battleships up off Malaya. They'd seen them thrashed again and again by a smaller German army in the desert. And a lot of Americans were saying to each other, who are these people we've gone into bed with? Who are these British allies? Do they have any, any idea of how to fight a war? Well, first of all, Churchill understood it was vital to give the people of the United States and the Russians an earnest of the fact that the British were not frightened of taking casualties and could fight. And um, secondly, and this was um, came a little bit later, but was also important. In 1942, early 1942, um, the American Chiefs of Staff, George Marshall, the US Army, they wanted to get on in there and take on the Germans in France. They wanted a D-Day in 1942. And they thought the British were pathetic not to be willing to get into that. Right. And the British, having been trashed again and again by the Germans, knew that the British were, that the Germans were very, very difficult people to fight. And what the Mediterranean did in 1942-43, first of all, it was the one theater in which the Western Allies were fighting the Germans. Secondly, it taught the United States a lot about just how difficult it was to fight the Germans, which was very important because after the, the American army had lost a few battles, they too understood why the British had found it pretty tough. And they understood they needed quite a lot of practice before they took on the main German army in Northwest Europe. And there, thirdly, sorry. No, 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 go ahead, please. Go ahead. And thirdly, um, they, um, um, Churchill needed that success, that Malta had become a symbol he had told everybody, the British people, the American people, the Russians, that Malta was the bastion of democracy in the middle of the Mediterranean. So he decrees that this huge task force, nearly 100 ships all told, 14 merchant ships, but best part of 70 or 80 escorts headed by four aircraft carriers, two battleships, uh, five cruisers, um, all to take this convoy um, right under the Germans and Italians' noses through the Mediterranean. The admirals thought it was madness. They thought this was crazy. They said, 
the danger we're going to lose. Britain had only seven aircraft carriers, and you're putting four of them in the Mediterranean. Churchill said it's got to be done. And so they went. And the story was an extraordinary, um, it was a, um, an epic, uh, as we've been saying, not only for the Royal Navy, but for the Merchant Navy. And those guys of the Merchant Navy who were being paid next to nothing, who got none of the glory and far fewer of the decorations. And over the days of those battles, um, uh, and the, especially the pedestal convoy, a thousand miles to Malta, the first day was okay. After that, the second day, they lose an aircraft carrier. Um, the third and fourth days, uh, they take the thrashing of a lifetime. And uh, the fifth day, they finally get through uh, with the best of these ships, the last of these ships uh, through to Malta, just enough to keep Malta fed. And this American-built tanker, the Ohio, which, of course, is one of the great sagas of the war, after being bombed and torpedoed again and again and again with crashed German aircraft on its deck, the ruin of the Ohio um, finally makes it to Malta, um, almost sinking, and as it's dragged by two destroyers into Grand Harbor in Malaya, in, in Malta, um, that um, um, the poor old ship finally slumps the last few feet onto the bottom of the harbour in, 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 uh, in Malta. But it doesn't matter because most of the oil's still there and so on. So it's one of the great epic sagas. But the reason everybody tends to be most interested, as you said, in the bulge and in the later battles, everybody wants to hear about all the battles we won. Well, what we have to remember is that the pedestal story took place when nobody knew what we knew. We know that we won. We know that Hitler lost. In August 1942, a lot of people were not nearly so sure of that. So this terrific battle took place. It was not as important as Midway. Midway was one of the decisive, probably the decisive naval battle of the Second World War. But um, it was pretty important. And reading about what those guys did, both the civilians of the Merchant Navy and of the Royal Navy, you probably want to burst into tears. Right, right. Let, let me put up a map of, of, of the convoy. So if my pointer works here, right? Well, of, course, they, of, of course, the first one is Eagle, uh, the carrier, um, right the, the old carrier, which uh, this was the second day after they passed the Straits of Gibraltar. And Eagle... Um, Everybody was feeling, um, they were feeling quite cocky because a few German and Italian aircraft that appeared overhead and the terrific barrage from the fleet um, had appeared to push them off without too much trouble. And um, a pilot who was taking off from one of the other carriers, um, he suddenly saw all the, um, the ground crew that, uh, on the flight deck of his own carrier pointing and gesturing. And they suddenly see um, three or 400 yards away they see this other big carrier, Eagle. It's been hit wham, 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 four torpedoes from a German submarine that had crept uh, in between the escorts, between even with all these 40-odd uh, escorts uh, around uh, uh, the merchant vessels. This U-73 had got in there. It had fired a salvo of four torpedoes at almost point-blank range. And Eagle, it began to turn turtle. And... A, a, a pilot on Eagle who survived, and he told said afterwards that one of the most terrible noises he heard in the whole war was 
as he and all the others were desperately struggling to uh, get up on the deck and get into the sea before the carrier went under. Uh, and they heard these terrible screams and shouts from down below in the engine room because it was always the engine room crews uh, who suffered the worst casualties. And Eagle turned turtle and went under in eight minutes. And it is pretty spooky to think of this huge carrier taking with it all these aircraft that went under so quickly. But I go back to the engine room crews, um, about two or 300 men died aboard Eagle. And most of them as always were the engine room crews. And how you got people to serve in the engine rooms of either merchant vessels or uh, warships, knowing that almost always, in almost every sinking, most of the losses were in the engine rooms because the poor guys doing these vital jobs, their chances of getting out were the worst. Yeah. yeah. So, so let, let me frame this question, uh, Max, because as I read the book, I kept asking and asking this question to myself. The convoy and, and the merchant ships continue on. And of course, as they get into these more narrow waters, it gets worse and worse because of, co just of course, because they're being you've only got to look at the map to see that the Germans, right. the Italians had air bases on Sardinia and Sicily. Right. And they were getting closer and closer, so that it was only a few minutes flying time. But, and what's, but my, what's sorry? Yeah. No, my question is, the 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 British uh, uh, naval forces, as they got into these narrows, kept um, going, uh, kept leaving the convoy, kept leaving the merchant ships. Right. They, uh, they had to go. What they did, the decision they did make, although Churchill had insisted that these carriers. And, uh, and the battleships um, accompanied uh, the force. Um, Churchill had forced the admirals to accept this view. But when they got into the so-called Sicilian Narrows, uh, which is about in the middle of your map, or just to the right of the middle of your map, right, um, right about, yeah, that sort of place where you are now, um, that the admiral, um, he'd only got uh, two carriers, that were, one had been sunk and one had turned back. He had two carriers, one of which was hammered terribly in a German air attack, which very nearly sank it, indomitable. Um, and so he got two carriers left, one of them badly damaged, and the two battleships. And the calculation was that when they were within three or 400 miles of Malta, it was just too dangerous um, in the Sicilian Narrows uh, right. to leave the carriers. So they left um, the convoy to be escorted by destroyers and cruisers. But of course, um, 10 minutes after um, the, not, not, not literally 10 minutes, but about two hours after the battleships and the carriers turned back, an Italian submarine attacked the convoy. Right. And it went for the, uh, the warships. And it was one of the most devastating uh, submarine attacks of the war. Everybody treats the Italians as if they were pathetic, but Italian submariners, some of them achieved amazing things. And this right. Italian submarine called Axum, um, uh, that it launched a salvo of torpedoes, wham! One hit a cruiser, which uh, immediately started to sink, had to be scuttled, wham! A second torpedo hit another cruiser, the flagship of the Admiral, um, and although it survived, it didn't sink, it had to turn back for Gibraltar, and it was out of the battle, and wham! A third one hit the, um, the tanker Ohio, the most vital ship in the whole convoy. This was a terrible shot, and just as the British were reeling from that shock, um, that suddenly um, another 
air attack came in, um, which um, sank another couple of merchant ships in the first few minutes. And um, I mean, the scale of the devastation, and just as darkness fell, and the British thought, oh, well, maybe they get a bit of a respite, German and Italian torpedo boats uh, started attacking. And again, in the hours that followed, they suffered some of the heaviest losses of, 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 of any force in the Second World War, that um, uh, two or three more merchant ships were sunk in the space of a few minutes, and their biggest cruiser, the cruiser Manchester, hit by a torpedo, her captain decided she had to be scuttled. This was a very interesting story, Manchester, because um, her captain was humane. Now, the cruiser, badly hit. It was um, uh, very close to the coast of Tunisia, which was held by the Vichy French, neutral. And the captain, middle of the night, um, uh, ship in a bad way, uh, the, the captain uh, of, the, of the cruiser, Manchester, decided that the only humane thing to do was to scuttle his ship and abandon it, because although it wasn't about to sink, that uh, um, when dawn came, that German-Italian aircraft would almost certainly sink it, and far more lives to be lost. So the ship was abandoned, and um, about 700 men uh, from Manchester made their way ashore and became prisoners of the Vichy French. Right. Now, this was a humane decision, and the captain was probably right that if um, uh, they tried to keep Manchester going, when dawn came, they'd have been clobbered. But Churchillian crusades were not won by being humane. And as soon as the captain of that ship, a man called Harold Drew, uh, was returned from uh, internment by the French in 1943, he was called Marshal. And he was found guilty, um, probably rightly by the standards of that day, of having failed to try adequately to save his ship. And it was the same principle that a couple of hundred years before, um, the British had shot one of their own admirals on the decks of their ship for not trying hard enough in a battle. And I have a good deal of sympathy with the Royal Navy for that court martial. It was a very cruel decision. But if you were trying to make sure that your officers and your captains did their absolute damnedest, then taking a very, very harsh view of anybody who didn't seem to have done his damnedest um, seemed very important. So it was fascinating what happened to Manchester and, um, and what happened to Captain Drew. He never received another seagoing command. Right, right. I love the way you put that. Uh, the, what, what was that, the Churchillian? Uh... Churchillian Crusades. Yeah, Churchillian Crusade. Churchill himself, the whole essence of understanding Winston Churchill, who I'm so glad you like my book about Churchill, uh, 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 about uh, Churchill as the warlord, Lord because, Lord. Uh, yeah. because um, uh, it was the book I enjoyed writing most, because writing about Churchill is so wonderful. And Churchill himself was a hero, and he could never really understand in the middle of a war why everybody else didn't want to be heroes too. And he was genuinely baffled sometimes by when British armies surrendered to smaller German or Japanese armies. And right. he, he was completely bemused. And um, certainly the episode of the Manchester and that big cruiser um, being scuttled when uh, she probably could have been kept going was the sort of thing that made him really, really mad. And it's easy to understand why. Right. Right, right. So uh, permit me to ask you one more question, and then uh, Todd, we'll see if any of our 
uh, members, anybody in the audience would like to ask uh, Max a question. So uh, let me see here. Yeah, this is it. Um, so that's, that's Ohio coming into Grand Harbor. And, and I have to tell you, as I read the book, uh, uh, Max, it was like I was watching some British murder mystery series, waiting to get to the last episode to find out, <laughs> you know, what happened. And I'm reading this book, and I, I'm thinking none of these merchant vessels make it to to uh, to Malta because I I didn't know the ending, right? And and I think out of fourteen, how many made it to Malta? Just three or five, four? including Ohio, made wow. it to Malta, and it was just enough. Uh, to keep Malta fed um, uh, and through until November when um, uh, General Montgomery won the Battle of El Alamein in the desert. And then the British were able to push west and um, American and British forces landed Operation Torch at the other end of North Africa. And after that, they were able to supply um, Malta without too much trouble. But the scenes on Ohio in those last um, days when she was being dragged, and I mean dragged, the last hundred miles to Malta by these two destroyers and still being relentlessly air attacked. And some of the men who got aboard Ohio got at their supplies of booze and some of the naval ratings were too drunk to stand on Ohio. And the captain of one of the destroyers, and remember, they could only drag this tanker at a speed of about uh, five knots, about five or six miles an hour. And there was a sort of madness in the air and the captain of one of these destroyers had a gramophone put on the bridge and he played over the broadcast system, the most upbeat record he got in his collection, which is Glenn Miller's Chattanooga Choo Choo. And it was about the only record he had. So they played Chattanooga Choo Choo again and again and again. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly moving saga. And there were a number of American survivors from uh, sunk merchant ship who were on board those ships and actually uh, a, a, a number of them manned guns on Ohio through the last few miles. Um, and um, it's an incredibly moving saga and they shouldn't have gotten away with it. They, um, by all the rights, not only um, the, uh, the tanker, but the destroyers should have been sunk. But it was a tribute, and I've said this in the book, to American technology, that although Ohio had a British crew on that voyage, that this was um, Ohio and Kentucky were the two strongest built ships of their kind in the world, built in American shipyards. And uh, I've said in my book that it was a classic case of the contribution that American uh, technological and production skills made to the winning of the war, a staggering contribution that no other ship afloat could have survived what Ohio survived because um, Ohio was so brilliantly compartmentalized. And what was fascinating to me, Max, is that uh, literally once it's docked or even perhaps here, they are pumping out the fuel as it sinks, as it in its final throws. And that in all of that, given the technology, all of those attacks, uh, they were able to, you know, although the, sh the whole ship was a wreck above the water. Well, they had they had two um, shot, shot down German planes on the deck. I mean, the whole thing was it was it was a shamble. Yeah. It was, um, uh, but they, there was a sort of madness, but it was a wonderful madness about the whole story. Fine. Any questions, any questions uh, for Sir Max Hastings? When is the movie coming out? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure enough Americans did it. 
you've got to have a part for Redford if you want to get the movie. Right, made. right, right. Well, we can do that. We can do that. <laughs> Mark Gleason, do you have any any comments or questions here? I know you're a Merchant Marine veteran from World War II. Um, you're probably familiar somewhat with this story. Uh, do you have any questions or comments here? Uh, Sir Max, I was just wondering on the Ohio, and I read the book, uh, Limping In, uh, what, did it have uh, aviation gas or oil? I, I, I can't remember. It was, in fact, um, it was it was oil. Um, it was uh, the aviation gas was all the other ships were carrying aviation gas in cans. But in fact, there was I had quite a bit of trouble figuring it out because um, a, a number of accounts of the time of people who participated said they were carrying aviation gas. But I finally got hold of the cargo manifest. And I found that actually it was oil fuel. But you're, where I think what's implied in what you're saying, if it had had aviation gas on board, it would have gone up because one or two of the other ships, um, uh, which were carrying aviation gas, uh, packed in cans on deck. When they were hit directly by German bombs, they just blew up. And that's what happens. But you obviously know more about that than I do. Oh, no, no, no not really. But I, what is really interesting when, when you... When they have these attacks uh, on these convoys, which go on for sometimes for a week or something like that, people are still eating and sleeping, and the people don't understand, you know, what happens to the body after about two or three days. Uh, the alertness goes away. Uh, all navies sort of forbid alcohol aboard, although the British like to give a tot of rum now and then uh, to get oh. your spirit up. But I'm not sure how much of that keeps you going. So one of the things that people don't understand that after about two or three days of somebody trying to shoot your head off, uh, you still have to stay alert. And I, that's amazing when, when these convoys do come through. You are so right, Mark. Although I have to say, having uh, sailed on quite a number of American ships and so on, that I know that the rules always say that the ships are dry, but I found they can be quite wet also. <laughs> but where, where were you yourself? I came in at the end of the war and I was in the most of the time in the Pacific for about a year. Yeah. So I... I didn't see any of the shooting, which was okay, but unfortunately, and we'll talk about this sometimes later, the, the United States government was really trying to increase their merchant marine. And fortunately for the British and the Canadians, uh, they were one of the ones really put the convoy systems together. And most of their ships earlier in the war really got the convoys going. So if it hadn't been for the British and their knowledge of putting ships together, uh, the Americans just did ships but the British and Canadians knew how to put ships together. Thank you. Well, it's nice of you to say so, but actually one of the things you touched on, which is very important, is one of my standing jokes when I'm writing about wars, is if you want to be a successful general or admiral, make sure you don't take command until your side are winning, until your side are stronger. Um, and in fact, it was much, when one looks at the guys who were in charge um, in the second half of the war, um, Obviously, it was easier for them because our side, the Western Allies, the United States, above all, and the British and so on, were by then so much stronger than the others. But of course, in 1942, the best air cover that the British, with four carriers, could put up over pedestal was pathetic compared with the sort of air cover that um, United States fleets in the Pacific were able to put up right. in 1944-45. So it is a sort of... Um, I think if, if I was allowed to choose my moment to be in any war, um, well, if you want to be a hero, um, it's, it's better to be a hero when you make quite sure your side are winning, which they weren't in 1942 yet. 
being available to whatever air cover the Germans wanted to send in. So you're under constant stress. So the, the fact that these men could come through this uh, was just amazing. They did a fantastic job. Guys, I've got to love you and leave you now. Um, but it was such a pleasure to be with you. And thank you very much for the privilege of, of sharing in your conversation. All the best, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Sir Max. The privilege is ours. Thank you very much. Thank you.